0: An album that I remember very well was Milligan Preserved. I remember playing that at Oxford, and it was about a year later, I started doing cabaret. It was the first time I'd ever done any performing of any kind. And, and that was a sort of inspirational album because it was so free and different, and I don't know what it felt like to make it, or whether it was a, a complicated business with spikes, good or bad days, but it had some wonderful things in, very different from sellers. I mean... Well, it was... It was really your kind of stuff. To GoonPod. Now, if you're listening to this podcast on the day it goes out, Wednesday, the 5th of October 2022, then it is exactly 60 years since Love Me Do. The Beatles' very first single was released in 1962. And it's also exactly 50 years since the broadcast of The Last Goon Show of All in 1972. Love Me Do, of course, was produced by George Martin, who only five months before had been best man at his friend, Spike Milligan's wedding and who had had earlier success as a record producer working with Spike's goon show colleague, Peter Sellers and to be fair with Spike himself. And so rather neatly on today's show we will be looking at George Martin, with the focus pretty much on the more comedic output with him as producer predominantly working with the likes of Sellers and Milligan. Uh, my guest is the man behind one of the most popular music podcasts in the world, I think it's fair to say, uh, the unstoppable juggernaut that is a history of rock music in 500 songs, and he is Andrew Hickey. Thank you for
1: having me. Yeah. Uh, another notable thing about today. I believe I believe it's your birthday. <laughs> yes, yes, it, it is. Um my my birth my birthday is also the 5th of October, but it's uh that's slightly less auspicious than than the uh the Beatles or or indeed the Las Goon show. And and indeed the 5th of October is also the date of the first Monty Python broadcast in 1969. And um the Beatles' first single, 5th of October 62. Was that date was also the date of the first James Bond film coming out? So it was uh, that, that was that was really the start of the sixties. Yeah. You know? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Doctor No, obviously. Yes. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah, same day as the first Beatles single, and it's the first release of a Beach Boys single in Britain. So,
0: well, in terms of the Goon Show, and I, I know Andrew, you're you're a little bit younger than than me, um, but. Did you, you know, did you grow up listening to Goon tapes or Spike on the telly or anything like that? I did.
1: Um, I actually, I've. Because of the kind of kid I was, I actually discovered The Goons through Roger Wilmot's book first. Um, I, I I was the kind... That, this is when I was like seven or eight. I was the kind of kid that would go to the library and read all the books on old entertainment. And so I read Roger Wilmot's book on The Goons. I also read his book on Hancock um, mm. when I was like very, very, very young. And I just found, found the um, things hilarious. The first Goon Show tape I had was... I think I was nine or ten, I finally got got hold of one. It was um the tape of 1985 and uh, the dreaded batter pudding hurler of Bexel on C. And so yes, I grew up listening to that. I was also a massive, massive sellers fan as a as a small child. I I loved um I actually even loved like the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu and those kind of things. Jeez, so right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have the greatest taste as a small child you know <laughs> But you just absorbed it all yeah yes yeah yeah
0: well obviously I've, I've asked you on here because um, you know you're a friend of mine and also you have got this alluded to earlier this wonderful podcast exploring rock through 500 particularly
1: not necessarily songs that you like, but songs that are significant, yeah? Yeah, yep. Um The podcast starts, uh, starts in 1938 with a record by the, the Benny Goodman Sextet, which is one of the first records to include electric guitar, and it will proceed up until the year 2000. Um, it's supposed to be one, once a week. It actually started also on the 5th of October, because I decided to start it on my 40th birthday. But it's actually a little... Um, it's the schedule slipped a little because of everything that's happened in the world in the last mm-hmm. couple of years yeah. um but it's it's supposedly weekly it's co- covering these things i'm currently up to 1967 and i actually i am doing the, the episode that is going out tonight as we record this is about a song written by Brian Wilson and Van Dyke Parks so yeah. there you go, tilt um <laughs> it's funny uh, andrew i've had so many
0: guests on this podcast who you know who don't know that you and I have you know know each other but have told me that they that they listen to 500 songs and they love 500 songs. Well, so that's nice to know. Yeah. It's, um, it's incredibly popular. And I know that you did an episode, was it the episode you did on uh, Hard Day's Night where you talked about things like Show Called Fred and whatnot?
1: Yes, yeah, because the episode I did on a Hard Day's Night, I concentrated as much on Richard Lester's film career as anything else. And so, yes, I talked about a Show Called Fred quite a bit in that and about Lester's other work, like the Running, Jumping, Standing Still film, which is obviously connected with this. Um, I've also Oddly enough, things like Associated London scripts have come up a few a few times mm. in the early episodes because uh, um, Scruffy Dale, who was the uh, owner of... Uh, not the owner, but he was like the business manager for Spike and for Frankie Howard and Eric Sykes and all those people, was also trying to be a pop manager at the time. He managed Jim Dale when Jim Dale was a pop star. Which, um, and, of course, Jim Dale's another one who's got a George Martin connection. And he, he managed um, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates early on. Oh, OK, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. So... Um, there is actually a fair bit of fifties and early sixties light entertainment history that's that's got sort of mixed up in this stuff. Uh so yeah, but yeah, the Hard Days Night episode in particular was sort of as focused on Richard Lester as on the Beatles. Cause sure. I try and I try and explore the wider culture um while looking while looking at the songs. It started off pretty much, what,
0: 20 minutes an episode, something like that?
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the first few episodes were 25 minutes or so. Um, the most, the one I'm editing at the moment, which, is, again, is going up tonight, is 1 hour 42 minutes. They've sort of expanded quite a bit. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you did an episode recently, which was about, I think it was about All You Need Is Love. And Oh, yeah, yeah. Did it, did it take you an hour before you actually started talking about The Beatles?
1: I... Don't I don't know if it took that long. I mean, that was that was a four-hour-long episode, mm. um, but yeah, I, I it, it took it took a fair while. Um, I have had complaints that the most recent one I did on the Beach Boys, I, I took an hour before I started talking about the Beach Boys because I was telling the history of the invention of the theremin. But yeah, I I, I don't think it took that long, but it it, it was a fair while because because I I was talking about. Um, Patrick McGowan and the Prisoner and so on. And, oh yeah, yeah. yeah, I know what it was. I think it was the Hendrix episode. Oh oh yes yes yes. I'm thinking yes. of the Hendrix episode. Anyway, yes. And uh, by the
0: way, my son the other the other night, just in conversation, just 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 dropped the fact that he'd watched, he'd sought out and watched the film of A Hard Day's Night. Uh, right. without, without any sort of pressure from me, yeah. he just wanted to see what it was like, and he said he really enjoyed it. So yeah. Um, and he's 16, you know, and I just think great. That's yeah. Um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about George Martin. We're going to talk about the work he did with, you know, the likes of Sellers and Milligan, etc. So Andrew, can you can you just sort of set the scene, give a bit of context in terms of where George Martin was in his career in in sort of I guess the late forties into the fifties, what what he was what he was doing, where his career was at.
1: Right. Well, George Martin is a very very interesting character. He. People, people know George Martin as this very patrician figure, the very sort of plummy speaking voice and so on. And because he was tall and blonde and blue-eyed, people thought he was you know, very upper class. He was actually a very working class man originally, and he had deliberately trained himself to speak like, a, like an announcer on BBC radio, um, partly because he wanted to become an officer during the war rather, rather than you know lower ranks. But he, he was brought up in a dirt poor family with a very working class accent. So he in the late 40s, after leaving the navy, after after World War II, um, at, at that time he could sort of write music a little bit, but didn't really know much about much about formal composition and so on. Uh, but he had a mentor who suggested he go to the Guildhall School of Music. And there he learned he learned to play the oboe. He was actually taught the oboe by Jane Ashe's mum. Um and he also um he learned composition and so on. And from there he went on to work firstly for the BBC for a very short time. And then, then at EMI, where he where he became the youngest executive at EMI. Um, and but he was the he was first the deputy head and then the head of Parlophone, which was the third ranked of the four EMI labels. You had HMV, which was all all the sort of serious orchestral music and, and all that kind of thing. You had Columbia, which was the more sort of poppy side of things and that that, that had all the big pop sales. Then mm. you had Parlophone, which George Martin was working on, and then below that there was only Regal Zonophone, which which put out records by the Salvation Army. So that's that's sort of like the tiering, and Parlophone was everything else. And so when George Martin started working there, they had um, Jimmy Shan's bagpipe band, for example. They had Humphrey Littleton. Um, they, it, it's it, it's sort of a, an omnium gatherum of all of all the stuff that wasn't in that wasn't suited to the other labels. None of it selling hugely well, but he he was sort of this... George Martin was a, a bit of a sort of social climber and a sort, of, sort of a very, very ambitious man. And so he, he sort of st- started looking, particularly when he took over Parlophone in 1955, he started looking at niches that weren't being filled by the other record labels. And very early on, in like 1953, he made a record called... <laughs> Um, messing Up Mozart or some, something like that. It wasn't, wasn't quite that. It was oh, something Mozart. Um,
0: mock Mozart.
1: Mock Mozart, yes. Uh, with with Peter Ustinov, mm. who he who actually met more or less at random because one of the first records he made at Parlophone was of Baroque music uh, conducted by a f- uh, musicologist who was one of the few people who liked Baroque music in London at the time. And this musicologist knew Peter Ustinov. And Ustinov and the musicologist and Martin all formed the London Baroque Society and tried to promote Baroque music. And so Martin got to know you stuff and they made the mock Mozart record. And that was, that was his first attempt at doing anything sort of comedy. Oh, God, I'm ferrato going to do anything, brother. And I'm not going to do anything. I'm Oh, God, I'm not going to do anything. Oh, God, I'm not going to do anything. Oh, God, I'm not going to and then by the, the mid 50s, he'd, he'd worked with Sellers originally on a record that, that came out, a children's fantasy story. Yeah. Um, Sellers did one of the voices. Uh, it was called um, Jucker and the Flying Saucer. And Sellers did the voice of God as Winston Churchill on that. And it was apparently, I've not heard it, it but it was apparently a dreadful record but so well, he, yeah he, he did all the all the voices including
0: um jacker himself and and also a dog all oh, right um,
1: right and it was see, it, it was it tanked basically yes yeah I uh, see i i having, having not heard the record i didn't know that i've only read descriptions of it but so he'd done this kind of thing and then roughly simultaneously he gets the job as head of Parlophone, which EMI were planning on shutting down at some point soon after this because it, it, it just wasn't having the sales that everything else was. So so he was... Trying to throw everything at the wall and see if it sticks, kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then he sees Flanders and Swan's review, and and he so he so he produced the recording of Flanders and Swan at, at the drop of a hat, yeah. which which became a massive, massive success. And around the same time he was approached by Milligan and Sellers to do the Unchained Melody Goons record, which obviously got cancelled because because of EMI's worries about the copyright.
0: You mentioned Humphrey Littleton. Yeah. I'd forgotten about Humphrey Littleton. Now, I take it George Martin didn't produce
1: Bad Penny Blues? No, although he was the credited a man. That was engineered by Joe Meek, of course. I, th- I think it was Ron Richards who did the, did the production of that. George Martin and Humphrey Littleton actually didn't get on very well, uh, because... Humph was one of the people that um, Martin produced very, very early on before he'd learned how to work with artists. And he told Humph at at an early session, the bass player sounds like he's playing with boxing gloves and Humph stormed out. he he wasn't, he wasn't going to take that, that kind of attitude. And Martin was told by the head of EMI, basically, you've got to get Humph back or you're sacked because at this time, Humphrey Littleton's band was actually quite a big band, you know? Mm. Um, So, Martin had to sort of go and grovel to him. And he sort of learned that was one of the things that made him learn how to how to have some sort of tact and diplomacy when dealing with artists. So he didn't supervise Humphrey Littleton's records from that point on, no.
0: Is is there any is there any truth in this rumour that Martin may have sort of been subliminally influenced by Bad Penny Blues when it came to Lady Madonna?
1: I, I, I'm pretty sure that um, Paul McCartney has said that, that, that he that he took the idea from Bad Penny Blues. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think that's just been outright stated. Certainly they were very aware of, of Bad Penny Blues. The, the original title for With A Little Help From My Friends was Bad Finger Blues, um, which then, of course, also be- got mm-hmm. used as the name for the band Bad Finger.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, just, just on, you, see, you mentioned Martin working with the likes of Euston and Flanders and Swan. Yeah. Um what about Bernard Cribbins? Was that around this time?
1: Uh, Cribbins was a bit a bit after he started working with Milligan and Sellers. I think it was 60 61 62 that oh, okay. he that he was working with Cribbins. But okay. yeah, it's it's all it's all around, around the same time, between the late 50s and the early 60s. Martin was very much the comedy man at, at EMI. He, he did um, Flanders and Swan, he did Mulligan, he did Sellers, he did Cribbins, he did uh, Charlie Drake, My Boomerang Won't Come Back and all those kind of things. And he, he did um, the Beyond the Fringe recording, which was, I yes, think, 61. Um, of course, yeah. So all, in fact, in fact, I think on the same day as the first Beatles session, sixth of June, nineteen sixty-two, he was doing some work with with the Beyond the Fringe team that day. I think that might have actually been the Bridge on the River Y sessions. I'm just gonna say, yeah, I reckon it's probably that. When was that? Yeah. Did you say June? Yeah, sixth of June, sixty-two. Um, so th- which which would be around around the right time, wouldn't it? Yeah, because we speculated on this previously
0: as to whether the likes of Cook or Miller or even Milligan or Sellers sort of walked past any of the Beatles in the corridor, you know, yeah. <laughs> if, they, if they brush shoulders. Yeah. Um, that'd be fascinating to, to, to know, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. There's also, there's a, there's a track in his discography, in, in um, George Martin's discography, if you like, in terms of, you know, records he was involved with, called Waltz in Orbit
1: oh yes yes and uh time Beat" was the was the other side of the record the the ray cathode single yeah um yeah. What's that yeah. about? that's that's a collaboration between him and members of the bbc radiophonic workshop um and he basically took bit, bits of electronic music that the that the radiophonic workshop had created already uh like on time beat it was actually the time code that was used within the bbc mm-hmm. and he recorded proper instruments over the top of this previously created electronic music, his joke was something like, he took music concrete and mixed it with orchestral music so it became a concrete mixer. even sort of promotional stuff with martin stood next to a a mocked up robot that that was the robot was supposedly the one that made the record which is sort of prefiguring the klf and the 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 time lords and the car making the record
0: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so how involved was martin around this time in terms of
1: you know suggesting instrumentation or anything like that well on, on the comedy records he was making he was doing Everything other than this, the script and the performance, he would often write all the music that would go that would go under things. He would come up with the sound effect. things things like on. Um, I think it, is it songs for swinging sellers the, the track by Matt Monroe. Well, yeah, uh, that that was that was entirely a George Martin thing with with no sellers input whatsoever. You know, um, the the original idea I believe was that Sellers was going to sing it in, in a sort of Frank Sinatra voice, but Matt Monroe did such a good Frank Sinatra voice that they just put him on anyway well yeah was, and he was and he was billed as fred flange yes yes which which was again um, martin's word he, he, he came up with that billing and of course he later coined the term flanging for the tape effect um, yes yeah because yeah. that was that was Martin's favorite nonsense word flange and so so he he had a lot of input into all into all that kind of thing I an ar man in those days which is what Martin's title originally was people didn't call them record producers until later but the anr stood for artists and repertoire mm-hmm. so his whole job was to sign artists and find repertoire for them which which would include in many cases an A&R man would write the material themselves if they couldn't find anything suitable, which Martin very rarely did, but most of the others did on a regular basis. Um, Martin was often responsible, not so much with Milligan, because Milligan would obviously write his own material, Uh, but for um, people like Sellers and Charlie Drake and Bernard Cribbins, it was Martin's job to find the comedy songs they were going to perform and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, So he was a major creative participant in these things, not just... Not just twiddly the knobs. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So
0: you, you mentioned Jack and the Flying Saucers, uh, which was 1953, which was a disaster. Or yeah. It, it, it just you know it it did nothing. He soon after recorded with Sellers um, Never Neverland and Dipso Calypso. Yeah. <laughs> um, then then we have Unchained Melody with the B side Dance with Me Henry. Yeah. Um and because of the whole fallout of that in terms of it, you know, not being released, there was
1: there was a bitterness in terms of sellers and milligan, and they went off to uh Decker. to Decca, yeah. Mm. Um but then of course he gets sellers back in and they, they record a, a couple of old musical songs they, like boiled bananas and carrots, yeah, yeah. yeah. And,
0: and any um, old iron. Yeah. Which which was a, I mean a sizable hit really because it, it got to number 17, didn't it?
1: yeah yeah and that's why they they got to do the um best of sellers album although of course um the, the, that was originally released as a 10-inch record because martin couldn't convince emi that that you know enough people would buy it to, to put on the extra two inches on the on the record um and they the later released an expanded 12-inch album when it was a big success but that that's the kind of sort of penny-pinching organization that emi was at the time they they literally would would only budget for a 10-inch album for the first sellers album
0: it was pioneering in the sense, wasn't it the first British comedy record, or LP, in a, um, in a
1: recorded in a recording studio? It, it, I, I've read that. I, I don't know enough about the history of comedy recording to say that for certain, but just just on the balance of probabilities, it almost certainly was. Because uh, EMI had only just started doing albums at that time, and I think yeah, the only... The only comedy album that uh, Martin had put out before that was At the Drop of a Hat. And I don't think any of the other major British labels were putting out comedy albums at all. But it would it would not at all surprise me if Best of Sellers was the, the first British studio comedy album, yeah. This comes out, what, late
0: 1958? Yeah. Best of Sellers. Now, I first heard it when I was 15, 16, so we're talking late 80s, really. Yeah um i got a secondhand lp and um taped it and used to listen to it yeah you know um on constant rotation on my walkman and i did it, i i did enjoy it but a lot of it was at that time over my head because yeah because it's very contemporary yes yes yeah yeah so we'll, i mean i'll run through in terms of what's on the best sellers so yeah the, 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 so the trumpet volunteer yeah um this, I mean, this completely is obviously a, a parody of Tommy Steele. Yes, uh, yeah. Again, 14-year-old me, 15-year-old me did not understand that
1: at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Tom, you see, this this is the kind of thing. That there's, there's a sort of, there's you often find little digs at George Martin's competitors in these things. Tommy Steele was somebody that George Martin had actually... Turned down. He'd signed the Vipers, who at who at that time had Tommy Steele singing with them, and he put out several singles by the Vipers. But he didn't sign Tommy Steele, even though he saw him perform. And then Tommy Steele got got picked up by another label and became a massive success. And so Martin always had this little bit of a grudge about him, you know. So, so as an example of how Martin was having creative input into into the sellers' stuff, that that's that's a prime example there, I think. Yeah.
0: Didn't Tommy Steele appear on stage in Singing in the Rain? <laughs> Yeah, uh, um, that's yeah. You know, that's a story for another time. Yes. Um, and so obviously yes, and we've got Jeremiah Clarke's
1: trumpet voluntary, which um, yeah, which all was also the Beatles used that in "It's All Too Much" as as the t- the tag. Oh, yes, they did. Yeah, they did.
0: <clears throat> on on the best sellers. You've got Auntie Rotter Yeah, she's written by Bob Monkhouse, and um, this meant a lot to me because from a, from. Uh, a very early age, I knew the name Auntie rotter before I had even heard, yeah. probably heard of Peter Sellers. I'm talking from you know when I was yeah. three or four because it was my dad's code name, rather right. rather rather uh, rather unkind <laughs> code name for one of my aunts, who, who he, he didn't particularly um, get on with. Uh, but um, but that I mean, if I listened again to that recently, and it's very dark. Oh, yeah. It's a children's presenter who is is basically trying to fill children's heads with notions, as George would say, Um, and um, basically encouraging them to murder their families. Oh, here comes Daddy up the front path. Wouldn't it be lovely to have two Daddies? Well,
1: we can arrange that. Got your little exercise hatchets. Then it's up on a chair behind a door. I hey, did Here comes Papa, show up oh. with your chopper and split him down the middle.
0: What else have we got on this record? We've got um standards like "All the Things You Are." Yeah. Uh, again, it's it's Sellers doing the William Mate Cobblers voice. Yes, that he, that he used uh, when he was doing uh, "Any Old Iron" a couple of yeah. years before. Possibly the best track, or my favourite—well, not the best track, but my favourite track on mm. on this album—is "I'm So Ashamed."
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Again, it's a real dig at the
1: the modern contemporary pop scene, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, again, this is this comes back to a sort of Martin's attitude towards these things. I can't remember who wrote "I'm So Ashamed," but but Martin at the time. Up until 1962, he didn't have any big pop hits, and he desperately wanted to have big pop hits. But this was this was because he thought it was much easier than making these comedy records. Um, he really, really hated Nari Paramore, who was producing Cliff Richard's records, mm. because he because he just thought you, all all you need is any song at all. If you've got a pop star, you, you, it doesn't take any. Whereas for for a comedy record, every single track you have to. You have to come up with a whole new idea, you have to come up with with inventive new sound effects. It it, it takes a lot of work, but, which producing pop singles doesn't. But he never managed it until the Beatles. It, it, you know, his only number one hit single before the Beatles was with the Temperance Seven, which you know oh, yes. and he had this, he sort of looked down on, on the pop world, but at the same time, he didn't really understand it. He didn't he didn't like it. It wasn't it wasn't for him. Yeah. You know? So so you, you find you find that a lot on, on the sellers records, lots of Little sly digs at the pop music world, as it was in the late fifties and early sixties, which is which is sort of fascinating now because so much of pre-Beatles British pop is sort of gone down the memory hole, and so, so getting getting this air of what people thought about it at the time is 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 a fascinating thing. I think.
0: Yeah, Sellers, of course, by this point was what what was he thirty you, three? You kind of wonder whether he's kind of sneering at. The, you know the pop movement if you want to call it that um, yes which he which he would later go on to embrace very much <laughs> yeah um, i've tried to was
1: and i've giggled i've rocked it and i've skiffled i've sung an old song and not no one could make out a word it's a truth i've clapped me hands till the blood run i've had echo go till me head spun till, till me, me head, head spun, spun, spun till, till me head spun me. But they say you're too old, too long in a tooth Give us you I've had me break down in the papers dyed me hair a luminous green I wobble me hips in sexy like capers And me cyborgs meet under me chin But I'm oh so ashamed
0: Probably the best the, the well, it is, it's the standout, it's the most famous track on Best of Sellers, which is Bellham. Oh, me yes, get me
1: to the south, yeah, yes. Um,
0: <laughs> which was, uh, which was, um, taken from the, the sadly lost late 40s, uh, third program radio comedy series, Third Division, that uh, Sellers and Seacomb, uh, right? On. Dennis Norden and, and Frank Muir, who, wrote, yeah. who wrote Third Division. Uh, they'd they'd written this sketch, but it, it was not just with Sellers; it was with you know, a whole bunch of people that were appearing on Third. Day right. And they took it and retooled it, repurposed it, and yeah. it turns up on this on this LP. And I mean, it's it's wonderful. Again, it is one of those where again, before I'd even probably heard of the Goon Show when I was yeah. very little. My dad would very often, if if opportunity arose, he would say manually. That is to say, once a year, which is, which is a famous line. Yes, from the sketch, and and then we've got uh, suddenly it's folk song. Which, oh yes, which includes uh, a, a, a a brawl in a in an Irish.
1: Pub. Yeah, and um, apparently, apparently George Martin actually injured himself do, doing that um, because they they just had to pile up all the tables and chairs in the studio because they didn't know any way to create the sound effect of effect. So they just smashed smashed them through around a load of tables and chairs, and George Martin got got a chair in the head at one point. So and and you could cr- hear cries out. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I won't have that from running around. I tell you.
0: Hey, look here, lads. Please, lads, the record
1: so what was the reception i mean it was obviously a hit yeah, it was a surprising hit. It, I mean, it, at the time, albums didn't sell that much, but I, th- I think it, I think it sold something like thirty thousand copies, which at that time was a phenomenal hit for an album, and certainly a phenomenal hit for an album on EMI. So they actually, like I said, it was originally released only as a ten-inch album, and they they put out like an exp- expanded and improved edition, like you know, like a director's cut uh, of. A, 12, a 12-inch album instead, because it's it old enough that it justified putting it out as a proper album. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, The Best of Sellers was the first, was what gave Martin enough sort of capital within EMI that he could do the later comedy records, the, the stuff with Milligan, the stuff with Charlie Drake, the stuff with Cribbins, and all those kind of things, because he proved that he could he could make a success out of it.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, by yeah. the way, I meant to mention before we were talking about Bellham. Yeah. A friend of the show, Mark Cousins, emailed me the other day um, about something else and he mentioned Bellham and he said um, something along the lines of uh, Mickey Dolan's did a kind of a short film based on Bellham. Do you know about this?
1: Oddly, I, it, it rings a very, very faint bell, but um, it, it's, it certainly sounds like the sort of thing that Mickey would do, but I, I, it's not um for for those who don't know i'm I'm something of a monkeys expert but Mm. um mickey in the um in the 70s was a a tv director in britain um and he he, he's also an an amateur filmmaker in uh, particularly at that time in a sort of big way and i know he he appreciated that kind of humor but i it's not it's not clicking with me uh, I have to look into it's that. Typical, it's that...
0: typical of me. I read the email and then I thought, oh, put a, put a pin in that. I'll come back to that. I'll have a look. <laughs> yeah. and then I completely forgot. Yeah, um, just just in case there's anyone listening, don't don't know. Yeah, you, you say Mickey um, in in the UK directing television. Yeah, most notably, of course, uh, one of my favourite shows when I was about five or six, Metal Mickey.
1: Yep, yep. Direct, directed that. He also directed um, from the top the the Bill Oddie children's TV show. He did, did a lot of ch- children's TV, Mickey in, in the seventies and eighties. Yeah. Before the monkeys got big again. Um. But yeah, no, I, I that that that's going to annoy me now because because it it's sort of, it's familiar enough that I should know it, but at the same time I, I'm not. It's not making connections for me. Um, okay. so I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to look I'm gonna have to look into that. After we've done this, you have to we
0: we'll have, have a look. So so off the off the success of best of sellers, um, Martin gets the green light to to make songs for swing sellers.
1: Yeah. That that album um, indirectly launched the whole career of Matt Monroe. Um because the first track was meant to be a Sinatra parody. And I think Matt Munro was working as a milkman at the time and Martin knew him and knew he could do a decent Sinatra voice. So he got Matt Munro in to imitate Sinatra as a demo for Sellers. And then they, they stuck it out as was. And Munro sort of got a got a record career from, from that songs for swing and sellers has my favorite of these early sellers things the lenny Goonigan thing which i believe was written by wally whiteman wasn't it but um that that's a that's a sort of a, it's a brutal brutal takedown of of um, lenny Donegan, all, all this stuff yeah, yeah so so this music's from the deep south yeah yeah i i I'll often go to cornwall and De- devon and, <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> But his, uh, accents, his accent's going all over the place, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes, yes. Working on the railroad. With, yeah. <laughs> um, and in a, in an interesting little tie back to um, The Beatles, of course, um, This the song that he, he parodies in that, Putting on the Style, uh, the recording that we have of John Lennon at the um, Walton Village Fate, the, the, the day John met Paul, he's singing a, a version of Putting on the Style, the, the Lydonigan oh, hit. So, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Oh, then he gave up women, cause there were none around. And he caught that midnight special and was Alabama fine. He played a little poker with a good old gambling man. That good old gambling man, he lost his shirt and let out one great big gooly day. <laughs> so so Songs of Sh- Swingin Sellers comes out in December 59, which is literally what, the month before the goon show ends. Yeah. Um it's, it's a continuation, I suppose, of the Best of Sellers in terms of a lot of the themes yeah. and, and the parodies. Uh, again, we've got this sketch called So Little Time,
1: which yeah. is
0: essentially, it's, it's a very thinly veiled, what would you call it, um, a, a lampoon of the Larry Parnes stable.
1: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and yeah, and I sense the hand of Martin in that again, because, because again, the, the Larry Parnes was working with other producers than him and Martin wanted that kind of artist and couldn't find couldn't find them those artists were very 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 big for a very short period of time some of them but they were they were not there there was there was not that much to them and it was very obvious to anybody watching that Parnes was choosing artists based far more on who he fancied than anything else, and that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't going down very well with with the sort of wider music business.
0: Yeah, and they had he gave them all names like was it somebody gently? Was it John
1: Johnny Gentle? Johnny, yes, Johnny, Johnny Gentle. Yeah, they all had these. these... Yeah, Marty Wild and Billy Fury, and yeah, it it, it was always a, a soft um friendly forename and usually something tempestuous or stormy as uh, uh, as the surname with the exception of Johnny Gentle which is possibly one reason why Johnny Gentle was not as successful as, as all the others um I, and the other exception was Joe Brown who who just refused to, <laughs> to <laughs> yeah. um I, I can't can't remember what Joe Brown was meant to be being called but it, it was so I, I think i think the surname was going was going to be quiver or something like that and he, he just flat, flat up quiver did you yeah. say? Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll have to I'll have to double check that now. It was it, it was, some, it was so, something like Her, Herbert Quiver or so, something along those lines. Um, I, I'll, I'll Google that. And... It,
0: yeah, if I if I'd been like uh, <clears throat> part of the the Pans stable, I'd have been someone like uh, Tyler Peevish or something
1: yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we've got one one thing we mentioned. Oh, I found that the uh, joke van was going to be called Elmer Twitch. <laughs> what? He did, and he objected to that. <laughs> yeah. Can't imagine why. Can you?
0: <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> do you reckon him and George Harrison would have become such good mates? <laughs> one thing I meant to mention um, about this album is that it, it uh, it has the sublime Miss Irene Handel.
1: Oh yes. Yes.
0: <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, most people who listen to this will know who Irene Handel is, uh, but she, she, um, she, she has the reputation as a game old gal and yeah. <laughs> um, often plays um, slightly, you know, working class, Uh, Yeah. Dotty old ladies with, you know, dropping melopropisms all over the place. Yeah. Um, But she first appears on this record uh, in a very posh role, doesn't she? Yeah. Yeah. It's basically a panel of very pretentious art critics i
1: suppose yeah i mean, it's it's meant to be a, a parody of radio radio shows isn't it? it was part of the um the radio today bit that which also had the lord badminton's memoirs bit in it that's um, right that's right yeah, yeah. um the, it's it's always a, th- a go-to for, com- for comedy isn't it the, to to make full of pretentious critics and I, um, I i think pretty much every famous comedian at some point or other has done a, a, ske- a sketch along along those lines because, because obviously performers tend not to be the great the greatest fans of critics generally and and so the, it's all it's always an opportunity to sort of the pomposity a little bit
0: yeah absolutely absolutely what are the few criticisms i have it's not, not even a criticism but it's something that comes across to my ear even now and it did when i first heard this this record um is a bit clunky or it's just not very effective. Is there's um there's the TV today, contemporary scene TV Today sketch yeah. where you've basically got Sellers playing a, a television interviewer who is trying to interview somebody but not not letting the interviewee answer yeah. get a word in. So it's obviously sellers talking to sellers and yeah. it it just doesn't sound natural, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It doesn't
1: flow. Yeah. Well, I mean that that was <laughs> Martin was the first person in Britain to do that to do that kind of thing I mean his, his first his first efforts at overdubbing was actually the mock Mozart thing and there they didn't even have multi-tracking tape he had to just keep playing back the record to Eustav and have used to sing over and over it mm-hmm. um it was very very difficult at that time to do that 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 kind of multi track back and back and forth kind of thing you didn't have the technology to smooth out smooth it out in the edit the way you did even a few years later so i mean yes sellers was very good at that kind of thing but at the same time it it, it is a matter of the the the, I, the the amount of clunkiness in that in that kind of performance is go, is going to happen just just because you can't smoothly smoothly edited to get the timing right it must be so difficult to do to do the timing when you when you can't hear the other side of the conversation
0: absolutely yeah and and the other thing i picked up was that there's there's a couple of occasions where um there's certainly words used that they wouldn't have got away with on television or the radio yeah Um, there's the interview with mr bidam yeah. Who's, who's um who's very very drunk and i think at one one point he calls the interviewer a bastard um, yeah and the the sketch i mentioned before um the the the, the word homosexual is almost uttered isn't it it's yes. sort of cut off halfway through. yeah and,
1: and of course there's um warrington minge warrington
0: minge yeah. absolutely yeah, yeah that's interesting as well that, that that's that's um, because this comes out in late 59 uh, just a year earlier uh, there was a, a goon show episode called um, the string robberies oh yeah and there was a line in that where uh, the address of a house and the house address was... 66 minge lane or minges Minge's lane even minges lane (laughs) yeah um and their temporary producer they had at the time um completely vetoed (laughs) that and they ended up um sanitizing it and calling it 66 fairy cake lane Um, (laughs) and probably the best for me the the best track on this LP is, again, with uh, Irene Handel, playing, playing,
1: uh, playing to type Yeah, um, Shadows on the Grass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and that, that one is another one where um, G- George Martin comes in, because because that was basically um, semi-improvised. I know there's a writer for it, credited. Uh, in fact, um, I think I, Irene Handel wrote that piece herself, but it was originally, like, 12, 13 minutes long, and Martin had to edit it down to, like, the... Five or six or whatever minutes it is on the, rec- on the record, and a lot of that was constructed in the edit rather rather than being na- naturally from the from the performance. But yeah, I mean, that's that that is pure Irene Handel as as she is known throughout the throughout, well as she as she was her, her persona in you know things things like the Hancock film, the Rebel, and all those kind yep. all those kind of things. Yeah, I was catching up with my sunbathing. Hasn't it been gorgeous? Beautiful weather. it's yes, because I've. Ten a lot faster in a bikini, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but where's the use of frightening everybody to death? <laughs>
0: my goodness, you would not frighten me, because when I saw you first, I said to myself, my goodness, what a beautiful woman. I would so very much like to know such a woman of beauty. Oh, now I'll call that truly gallant. Shall
1: I get up and take a bell?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Please, take one, by all means. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you come here often, do you? <laughs> well, I come
0: here quite often, as I said, to feed his birds. Yes. Because I love the
1: open air. Well, he's very nice, isn't it? I mean, he's private without being insulated, if you know what I mean. I can see you're like me. I will not go into a public park and mingle with a hoi-polloi.
0: I quite agree. Oh. I like to keep myself to myself.
1: Oh, aren't there some shocking
0: and obviously she turns up in fact the, the same year she's um, mrs fred kite in i'm all right jack of course
1: alongside oh of course she Salas. is yes yes
0: uh and in was it 79 i think sellers put out a, a, a his final lp which was um, uh, sellers market
1: and i'm not familiar with that one so
0: <clears throat> it was yes it was a pretty pretty successful in terms of execution pretty successful lp pretty entertaining and uh, he's reunited with right uh irene Handel for basically a, a sequel to shadows on the grass i suppose oh. it, in which he is playing sellers is playing himself on i think it's on concord
1: right
0: and um, irene Handel uh thinks she recognizes him and comes up and asks for an autograph and it it goes on for a while it's very very funny right um so if you get if you ever get a chance uh, you know have a listen to that i think that's on spotify and yeah you mentioned wine and minge that that's a hilarious sketch with um oh yeah uh, with the actor the because sellers had this great love for
1: old actors <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he he, he was brought up a, a, in in a sort of theatrical family, wasn't he? So mm. it, it sort of, it, it, a, a love, but also also again a, a mockery. But it, it's it's a it's a, a far more sort of affectionate mockery than of the young pe- person's music of the day. You know, the the young person's skiffle music. It's a far more understanding thing. And I think that's the only sketch that Sellers wrote himself on the album, isn't it? I, I believe. Oh, I'm not sure. Actually, I didn't check.
0: Yeah. Uh... I skipped over one of the tracks. Actually, um, wouldn't it be lovely? Which is a bit oh yes,
1: now yes, yes. Um, but it's also um, it, it was through doing that that George Martin got to know the Indian musicians who would later employ to work, work on Beatles records. Yeah. Um, he had to like get in touch with the Indian embassy at the time to try and find, to try and find anybody who could play sitar or tabla. But yes, it's obviously, I mean, sadly. Peter Sellers' comedy Indian voice is responsible for a huge amount of racism over over the years. Because I mean, you know, Apu in The Simpsons is um, Hank Azaria trying to do Peter Sellers' comedy Indian voice rather than rather than, yeah, yeah. But it was a different time. It yeah. was. It was. Yes. <laughs> um,
0: I want to mention as well. Uh, the terrible, shameless name dropping here. When I was uh, talking the other day to Mike McCartney. Um, he he expressed how much he and his brother, not sure who he is, um, they absolutely adored this album, "Songs for Swingy Sellers." That was yeah. Um, they they had it in the house. They would play it all the time, and um, and he pointed out as well that um, it's got quite a. If you think about it, it's quite a shocking cover. Yes, which is yeah. which is basically which is um, a man. well I must pre- we presume it's sellers. We don't see his face. Um, it's yeah. like hanging from a tree. Yes, <laughs> hence the swinging sellers. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I've skipped over, by the way, in '56. Uh, so it's obviously you know uh, Martin had worked with S- sellers and Milligan on uh, Unchained Melody, but he also in '56
1: produced You Got to Go, Owl oh yes 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 um spike and eric yes to go out he's going to go out. You got to go out he's going to go out. which
0: which again uh, did nothing <laughs> yeah uh but then obviously sellers goes off then to make films really doesn't he sellers, Yeah. sellers by by 1960 sellers is becoming not just a you know a domestic film star yeah. uh, but yeah, an international film star he does make uh, peter and sophia in 1960 yes. which we have covered that lp on this on this podcast in fact i think it was the third or fourth Sure, right, yeah so if anyone's interested in checking that out, Tim Worthington is the guest um, that is in the archives. Um, the, the one thing about that LP that I didn't realize when I recorded the podcast last year is that um, he uh, Martin bought in a wobble board to use yes. because yeah. we've been recording with Rolf Harris. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and then in 61 he makes Milligan preserved.
1: Yes, yeah. Which uh, another one with with a famously with that that one the, the famously difficult cover because apparently Spike nearly suffocated when they were because yeah. they had to sort of cut cut a hole in the table put put the put the bell jar around his head he couldn't breathe while they were taking the taking the photo. But yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Again, this is an album that I am going to be covering in detail. Um, yeah.
0: in a future show. So I don't really want to go into any detail too much. Sure. about This, but other than to say that there there are some. I mean. I've gone on record to say that the the well the, the sketch word power with Valentine Dial and Spike Milligan I think is is standout on yeah. LP.
1: Um, There's some beautiful music as well. Um, yeah, which which again is all George Martin's composition or, or arrangement. I think I think I think it's um, credited to Ron Goodwin, isn't it? But uh, but um, but yeah, George Martin arranged all, all the music and. Sort of laid it laid it under. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: that's that's and the, and the thing is, um, you've got Spike, you know, working with bringing in his his friends and and people like Graham Stark. Yeah, is is on this. Uh, said Valentine Dial. Um, John Antrobus is uh, is is doing some of the writing for it. He, yeah, he's got Alan Clare on piano on um, "I'm Walking Out with a Mountain." First, time. yeah. Uh, and also he um there's a there's a song called Fun Fun Fun. Every one one will have soon got the blues on the run. If from Jan to December I'll only remember this fun, fun fun let's have
1: Oh, a song divine sung by a beautiful tall willowy creature called Miss Patricia Ridgeway. Despite her fair
0: face, fair figure and fair voice, she only had one small piece of toast for breakfast. But when you consider what this young girl has eaten in her lifetime, 43
1: whole bullocks, 81 prime Hereford cows, 1,000 acres of potatoes, 207 sacks of Spanish onions, eight
0: warehouses of brown bread, inadvertently a small packet of a violent purgative called Crash... (laughs) there's a, a lady singing on this and it is um it is the the soon-to-be mrs spike milligan uh paddy ridgeway the actress who right um, yeah who spike married in 62 as i as i said at the outset yeah um, he actually asked george martin to be his best man and yep. george had just bought a new mini and the wedding was going to be up in um in yorkshire where Paddy's family were. It was going to be a big Catholic wedding. Spike hadn't met his in-laws, so he was very nervous. Right. And um, they were meant to get the train up, but they couldn't get a seat. So, right. so Martin had to drive him and Spike up, up, up north from London. They had they had three hours to get there, or something ridiculous like that, in a minute. Yeah. Uh, foot to the foot to the floor. Um, with Spike losing his. <laughs> proverbial <laughs> yeah. uh, for the whole journey. Um, and they just made it in time. And uh I just I, it, it intrigues me that Spike would ask George Martin to be his, his best man. I don't really I've never got to the bottom of why that was. They're obviously friends, but you just think it's just an
1: intriguing kind of yeah. footnote, isn't it? Yeah, well i I have never seen anybody say why, but thinking about it, the, the obvious thing is if he because I didn't I didn't know actually that Spike had never met his, his in-laws up to that point, but the obvious thing is you George Martin is an impressive kind of person to, to bring along uh, as, as your best man, wouldn't he? You know, True. he was like six, six foot tall, very posh-bearing, and also he was a Catholic as well, which, which would have, if it was a Catholic wow. wedding, that would have impressed him. I, he wasn't a practicing Catholic, but he was raised Catholic, and so it makes sense from from that kind of perspective. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, I've never heard about Spike and M- Martin being massively close otherwise. You know, not when, whenever you read... George Martin talking about stuff. It, it tends to be Peter Sellers he talks about Martin rather than Spike. So yeah. it, it 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 is it is an odd one. But then again, I don't I don't get the impression that Spike was very close to many people, really. You know, so uh, well Sellers and him obviously, yeah, um, yeah, and and a few others. But um,
0: but yeah, and, and so and as we've already said in '62 as well, Martin produced Bridge on the River Why with. Um, Cook, Miller, Sellers, yes. again was going to be quiet um, for rights reasons. He had to yes. go through and cut the K from every mention. Yes. So it becomes the River Y. Uh, again, we're going to be covering that LP next year. So we'll talk right, about, yeah. about that in more depth. Um, now, George Martin did produce... Or did he produce Sellers doing a hard day's night?
1: Yes, he did. Yeah, he actually produced all the Sellers Beatles recordings. The uh, "She Loves You" and "Help" mm. and all those kind of kind of things. Yeah, but yeah, the, that arrangement, the the sort of semi madrigal kind of arrangement that's that's on the Sellers hard days night. That that's all Martin. Yeah, and yeah, I think I think it was George Martin who got Sellers involved in that in the in the first place, because um, obviously. He 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 was a connection between the Beatles and yeah. Sellers, um, and th- that was for, that was originally for the TV show "The Songs of Leonard McCartney." And yeah, um, my my favorite of those actually is the um, she, "She Loves You" um, dialogue. Strange love. No, no, the 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 um, posh twits one. The twits one. yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got I got an EP of that when I was about 12 or 13 with, with photo photos of sellers arranged like the like the hard days nights of Oh, so, yeah okay. yeah okay yeah oh nice have you still got it oh yeah I've got I've got it somewhere yes yes um uh, it hasn't hasn't been played for well because I've got all that stuff as mp3s now but yeah that 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 was the the one seller's solo record I had as a kid so that that one got got played a lot yeah right
0: and 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 George Martin did record with Michael Benteen very briefly i believe
1: i i have not come across that but um it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me but i um I, it's not i'm not familiar with him doing that so.
0: no i wasn't able to track down much information about that um but to be fair i i, I, did, I didn't spend a lot of time looking yeah. um, but i probably will <laughs> do that at a later date and of yeah. course um i guess this is probably his last hurrah with with Spike was um the q5 piano tune oh yes yes in 1969 which a couple of my guests have said they want played at their funeral right so uh so yeah so everyone knows what happened in terms of george martin's career in yeah. the 60s <laughs> everyone yes. knows what happened after the beatles as well he pretty much became producer for hire but he was a much uh, sought out uh, yeah. producer you know, the, this period, the 50s, working with the likes of Sellers and, and Milligan and, and all the comedy
1: stuff that he was involved with, you know, was it dear to his heart, you know, up to the oh, end? Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, and he, he he would describe you know, working working on Sgt. Pepper as being like, like making a Peter Sellers album. He would occasionally do comedy things, even in his later years, like he, like he did a, an album of, um, I think it was called In My Life, he did an album of uh, remakes of Beatles songs in the 90s, and he got Robin Williams and Jim Carrey to do tracks on that. At. And he always talked about how it was his experience working on particularly the sellers tracks that firstly gave him the experience of doing the sound effects and, and the studio experimentation that he would later bring bring into the Beatles stuff. And as I said, the it was through working with Sellers that he first got in got in touch with Indian musicians. Most important of all, it is the fact that that sense of humor is what allowed him to bond with the Beatles early on and that gave them some respect for him because he'd made those records that they loved so much so it it was an absolutely it it, it was other than the Beatles his his comedy stuff was was the stuff that he valued the most in his career you know it was it was the stuff he was proudest of you know and with, and with good reason, um, you know, when you, when you consider that the same man did those two Peter Sellers albums, and did The Flanders and Swan at the drop of a hat, and did Beyond the Fringe, and we we wouldn't have any of these records of some of the greatest comedy ever made without him, you know, yeah, yeah. He, he, he would be an important figure in British entertainment history, even if he'd never signed the Beatles because of his work with Sellers and Milligan, because of his work with Flanders <laughs> and Swan and with, with even you know, Charlie Drake and that, that kind of stuff, you know, that, that was, th- those were still big records. You know, when Bernard Cribbins died the other week, pe- people were talking about right said Fred and holding the ground yes. and those kind of things, you know, yes, yeah. um, and yeah, George Martin was always, always very, very, very proud of that work. Yeah, yeah,
0: it's, it's it's interesting you say about you know obviously I knew the story that you know the Beatles were impressed by his pedigree by his by what he'd worked on, and um, that that certainly helped sort of uh, grease the wheels. Um, and, yeah. Um, but I, I, it's not until now, really, that or, or recently that that I I kind of just took immediately assumed that that would be very much John Lennon.
1: And, yeah, no, and it, it was all of them. Yeah,
0: yeah, but I did, but I didn't realize how much of a fan uh, Paul was. of yeah. songs for swinging Sellers, for example.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's it's Paul that eventually got Unchained Melody yeah. released because he a because he was um, obviously friends with George Martin, and B because he was a Goons fan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Lennon Lennon was obviously the biggest Goons fan of the group, but but it's it's. Paul has this reputation that's not really deserved as as being sort of straight-laced and goody-goody and so on but he but he was you know i mean if if you look at look at the anthology films um he talks about how much the beatles loved the running jumping standing still film and those kind of things and how he he admired richard lester for that he he was every bit as interested in goon type humor as john was um paul wrote a little bit of prose for Mersey Beat magazine in the early 60s, nowhere near as much as John. But like he wrote a, a sort of what I did on my holidays thing about going and seeing Vince Taylor perform live in France with John in 62. And that's full of sort of attempts at goon style wordplay and so on. He's not as good at it. as He's not as fluent at it as John. It doesn't come naturally to him, but he wants to. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very, very clear that he, that he was an admirer as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I think I
1: think that pretty much
0: covers it uh, in terms of, you know, it, you know I, I, I've already said I, I will be covering the likes of Milligan Preserved and Bridge on the River Wye in the future. Yeah. So, uh, and I'm sure at some point I'm going to have people wanting to talk about the best of sellers and songs of swimming sellers in depth. So yeah. those, you know, those I'm sure we will return to. But Andrew, thank you. you know, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, we've already kind of more or less done the big plug for, Five hundred songs, but is there anything else that you're working on or anything coming up, you know, with the podcast that you want to tell people about?
1: The the podcast at the moment is do, is in the middle of summer 1967. So if you're interested in the Kinks or Sid Barrett era Pink Floyd or Jefferson Airplane or the Small Faces, all that stuff is coming up around the time this episode is going to be out. Um, but yeah, like like I've said, there are a few episodes in in the in the past that people who enjoy this might like. The, like I say, the episode on A Hard Day's Night is that talk, talks quite a bit about things like a show called Fred, and th- there are a number of episodes that deal with British light entertainment history in ways that intersect with the goons. All right, well, Andrew, listen, it's been great. Thank you
0: again, and uh, I'm sure that you and I will speak again very soon.
1: Thank you. Bye.